I guess we got a few topics to cover today. The first, I want to sort of just talk a little bit about what's going on in the Fifth Circuit, where all of the Trump judges uh, seem to be going out of their way to be openly hostile to gay and trans litigants, which was pretty gross. And it like it dovetails nicely with the kind of interesting issues on uh, Seventh Amendment, uh, not Seventh Amendment, uh, Title Seven, uh, civil rights law, and what sex discrimination looks like. I mean, Charles, if you want to talk about the Seventh Amendment, we can talk about the Seventh <laughs> Amendment too. I am. Yeah. I. I. Uh, I do not. At this like, do you moment. do you think the value in controversy shall exceed twenty dollars? You think we need to raise that in the Seventh Amendment? I do not even remember what the Seventh Amendment is. I all I know is I'm about to get a very Sixth Amendment confrontational. Uh, I, I literally don't remember what the Seventh Amendment is. I'm Charles Starr, and this is Hostile Witness, a podcast about law at the end of the world. For episode two, I'm joined again by Patrick Cosmos and Eric Michael to talk about Trump's Fifth Circuit, an appeals court with an open contempt for anyone who isn't straight. Because one of the cases we cover later deals with trans health issues that none of us were too familiar with, I brought in Lauren Walker to talk to me about some of that. We'll meet Lauren later, but first it's just the lawyers. This is Hostile Witness. They're with us. Still chasing little blue ghosts. We're going to drop a level from the unaccountable Supreme Court majority to the new rogue Trump circuit court apocalypse. (laughs) Specifically, I guess we'll look at the Fifth Circuit because the Fifth Circuit has of late just decided to go really full bore transphobic and in a really over the top way. (laughs) United States versus Varner, this is a fun opinion. This inmate files just a motion to change their name from a male name to a female name when they uh, transition in jail. And the request, it's literally just a letter that basically says, could you please call me by my proper name and my pronouns? And uh, the government says no in a very rude way. Well, there are two levels to it, right? There's the first thing, which is she makes an a weird motion under a federal rule that allows for correcting clerical errors in the record. The initial claim is she wants to make this change where the judgment, which was entered against her when she was presenting under the gender assigned at birth, and so on the record, she is Norman Varner. And so she files a motion saying, I was convicted six years ago. I would like to change the name on the judgment to Catherine Nicole Jett. That is my name now. I am a woman. But under this federal rule, I want you to change the name on the record. And that should have been really simple, right? That claim is really simple because no, (laughs) it's a six-year-old record. It's not a clerical error. And that's just not what this is for, right? That's the simple solution. It's a little, it's a little insensitive, but it's just, it's just kind of like making, and that's what the dissent basically says is the request was made under the wrong rule. You can't really get a remedy here. And so the claim should be dismissed. And that's exactly what the district court did. Yeah. And, and just before um, before arriving at that conclusion in this opinion here, I just do want to point out that uh, the judge writing this opinion, Judge Duncan, make sure that you, the reader, understand 
um, that this individual, who, again, on the record name is Norman Varner, is in prison for attempted receipt of child pornography, and also that uh, the sentence was influenced by a previous conviction at the state level for possession of child pornography uh, and failure to register as a sex offender. So it's very relevant information um, that, you know, the judge wants you to know at the outset of what type of person we're talking about here who is making this modest request. Right. Right. I mean, it's like, it's a sort of, it, it's sort of traditional judicial opinion writing where if you uh, really want to prejudice the legal issues, you make the litigant look like a piece of shit. And so he, he definitely made sure to do that here uh, because in no way is the underlying offense relevant to any of, to any of the claims. And so and so that part was easy or it should have been. Mm-hmm. The district court certainly found it easy. District court said this is not a valid request under Rule 36, dismissed the case for failure to state a claim. And then Varner appeals. Do you want to pick that up, Patrick? Yeah. So this opinion I had spent some time away from this opinion from when we discussed it uh, before, and I really forgot how once this guy gets going, he gets enough runway in front of him, and this is just like a cruel, absolutely rolling snowball of an opinion. The second they start discussing the reasons why they're not going to allow this motion, first off, the test is disingenuous. The judge makes a point of misgendering her like as often as humanly possible. Like it feels like there's extra pronouns in this opinion. They try to apply this three, this three reasons sort of cascading test. And the first thing that they say is basically that they should go ahead and misgender this person and ignore their request because there's no rule. My notes here say that this is the air bud rule that says ain't nothing in the rule book. And, um, (laughs) That's so that goes on for a while. Right. Though, though, I mean, I just want to back up here for one second, because what brings all of this up is Varner appeals on the merits. And then in addition to the appeal, she writes a two sentence. They call it a motion, but it's literally two sentences. And uh, this is the whole thing, because the dissent includes it the majority opinion doesn't because it's easier to treat it like some really grand legal theory Mm -hmm. if you're going to make fun, if you're going to really knock it down. But this is the entire motion. Motion to use female pronouns when addressing appellant. I am a woman and not referring to me as such leads me to feel that I am being discriminated against based on my gender identity. I am a woman. Can I not be referred to as one? Signature block. That's it. That's the whole motion, probably handwritten and mailed to the court, right? Like, it's just a request. It's a request for dignity. And that is what sets off this, like, cascading avalanche of hostility from Duncan, who clearly finds it hilarious that he gets to do this. Yes. In this opinion, because it's all completely unnecessary. You could have written. Yeah, totally unnecessary. Right. This this could have been handled in a two sentence opinion. Right. No or no opinion where it just goes in the federal appendix where, you know, you affirm the lower court's judgment that it wasn't valid under Rule 35. They failed to state a claim because that's not a this isn't a record keeping thing. You can't just change your name on six year old records. You know, the, the court is like on the legal issue. The court is like Bruce Jenner won the gold medal, not Caitlyn Jenner. Mm-hmm. Right. We can call we will call her Caitlyn Jenner now, but we're not rewriting the Olympic record books. That's what this claim is. And so all they had to do was affirm, and then they managed to fuck it up like five different ways just <laughs> to be cruel. Yeah, it, it, it starts out, you know, just, just showing how unnecessary it all is. You know, the, the, the first thing uh, that Judge Duncan does is say that, 
you know, there, there's motions like these. They've been filed in other circuit courts. And, you know, some of the other circuits have just, as a courtesy to the litigants, referred to them by their chosen pronouns. And then he puts in a footnote, and the footnote is literally every single circuit. It's like, right. <laughs> see First Circuit, Second, Third Circuit, Third Circuit. It's, it's everyone who's confronted this motion in similar circumstances has just said, okay, you want us to call you by your pronouns in this courtroom? That's fine. Like, it's not, it's not yeah. a big deal. Yeah. But, but no, he, it's he, literally half a page. Yeah, yeah. He, he, and, the, he, and the text is three times as dense as anything else yeah. on a normal page would be. It's remarkable. Right. And, and so it's just like he's this, again, Charles, you've read it. It's a two-sentence motion, and it's being treated as this, this legal filing that, if accepted, would rock the federal judiciary. Uh, <laughs> right. that, that we're going to be setting binding precedent that anyone who walks into our courtroom and says, you know, I want to be addressed... In whatever, you know, pronoun that they choose um, or whatever, but addressed however they want, that we're going to be setting binding precedent that we have to recognize them. And it's right. just it's just you read what was actually submitted to the court and you, you just can't help but shake your head and, and say that this is intentional. This is intentional just to take a shot at the notion um, that there are transgender people who prefer to go by pronouns that are other than their right. you know gender at birth. The other part of this that really I think is just crazy, I, re I reread this you know, a little bit before we, we started talking, is the argument that if we were to honor this motion and, and, and address this individual by her chosen pronouns, any judge who does so might be showing bias and impartiality towards transgender litigants and and you know there no, are no no towards non-transgender litigants well, well to essentially acknowledging that you know there there are all sorts of issues these days you know whether it's under the civil rights act title 7 or just transgender issues are in the federal courts today and if you're a judge who uh, shows a willingness to acknowledge pronouns, you might be tipping your hand in terms of, uh, you know, bias one way or another. And it's like, you're, you're <laughs> writing a 20-page unnecessary opinion to tell someone that they don't get to use the pronouns right. of their choice. Like, how is that not showing yeah, impartiality? I mean, it's, really... it's, it's, it's insane. <laughs> well, showboating, it was, it... showboating for the benefit of the people who read the National Review is clearly a... Um... An apolitical right. act, so. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, I respect the jujitsu where he's like, actually, <laughs> the, the real discrimination would be treating you with dignity. <laughs> he even has a sentence where he's like, the courts that follow the convention, he puts convention in scare quotes. There's so many scare quotes <laughs> in this. <laughs> <laughs> the, the convention of using uh, people's chosen pronouns have done so purely as a courtesy to parties. And you'd think that that would be where it ends, where they go, sure, we will extend that courtesy. And, but they're like, no, no, none has adopted it as a matter of binding precedent. As if that's what the request was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so then they go on to like do the whole jujitsu where they're like respect is the real discrimination. And then it really devolves into like a town hall column. Yeah, this is great. Where the, it goes from ain't nothing in the rule book that says we have to treat people with dignity to it might show bias for some reason to show people dignity. And then the third one is besides it's hard to treat people with dignity. And there's <laughs> right. and there's like a graph like it's. It looks like a um, like a science fair display, like this big list of all these um, of all these different pronouns, like the periodic table of, of yes. pronouns. <laughs> yeah, the periodic table of pronouns and their proper conjugation, which is like you know he, she, they, and then zay and zir and a, a bunch that I hadn't even heard of. But this is like the the what I call the Oberlin rule where they just want to make fun of the very idea. And he inflates it into a real constitutional issue where he's like, if I address this litigant as she in some future litigation, someone may ask me to refer to them as Z. And then what do I do? Yeah, and he closes by referring to calling someone by their pronouns a quixotic undertaking, which is, again, a nice flourish right at the end there. Right. And so the dissent is just perplexed and annoyed. Yeah. The dissenting judge is a Clinton appointee, and the dissenting judge is like, I can't believe how many ways you're dumb about this. 
right? And the first is a legal way. The first is they're like, why are you dismissing this for lack of subject matter jurisdiction? The, the distinction in the law is there are claims that a court can't hear because they're just outside of the jurisdiction of the court. That's just very broadly subject matter jurisdiction. I can't ask the court to tell me I'm pretty, right? That is not a case or controversy. But then there are claims that just fail on the merits, most of them. If you try to bring a case and you don't have sufficient evidence or the evidence doesn't meet the requirements of the claim, you dismiss it for failure to state a claim. But the court isn't like, we couldn't have heard this in the first place. And the dissent here is like, this is a pretty easy one. They brought the claim under Rule 35. We're allowed to hear cases under Rule 35. And if this were a normal clerical correction, we would either make it or not make it. It's not a jurisdictional question at all. And there are Supreme Court cases that say, oh, sorry, Rule 36, don't screw this up, right? Don't divest yourself of jurisdiction when what you mean is it's not a valid claim. And so you should have just said the court was right that this is not a valid claim. They were right to dismiss it on the merits. We affirm and then not dealt with the pronoun question at all. And if you wanted to, let's take a look at what that motion was. And that motion is a two sentence thing asking for dignity. And we either could have not used pronouns at all or just treated her with dignity. <laughs> You could have just done what everyone else does, not because it's required, but because we're civilized. Wouldn't have been half as cathartic for this guy. Right. He needed to make fun of a person who was in distress. And that's the theme of all of this Fifth Circuit stuff. I, I was just going to say, you want to talk about gratuitous uh, <laughs> opinions. Uh, can we talk about Whitmer? Yes. Take it away. <laughs> So Whitmer's another Fifth Circuit opinion. Um, it's about a year old. It's written by Judge James Ho, uh, who's another Trump Federalist Society appointee who's in his mid-40s that we're, we're all going to be stuck with for the rest of our natural lives. Yeah, new, um, new friend of the show, James Ho. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, I mean, the facts here, they're pretty short and sweet. And again, this, this really should just be a very short opinion, but it's not. This is a case where this individual, Nicole Whitmer, which again, like because of the nature of the opinions, I don't, I'm assuming that that's her uh, birth name, but she now identifies, I, I, I honestly can't tell if they're misgendering people in these opinions or not. No, in this, but, in this opinion, I don't think there's any misgendering at okay, all. Yeah. I think she brings the claim as Nicole, and I believe that even, yeah, it's just, so it's, it's, he, it's hard to I tell. I think he actually uses feminine pronouns. Right. And I don't think the employer ever cared about I Ms. I think that they might just use her name. I don't know that the word she is in here. Oh, that's, that's Other than in quotes. Yeah, yeah, I think that they just sidestepped that entirely, which, um, again, puts the lie to the big, long thing we just read. We have this woman, uh, Nicole, who applies for a job with Phillips 66. Uh, and, and the long story short, they run a background check. Or, or a reference check uh, on her and figure out that she essentially lied about being terminated from her previous job. She, they they with, withdraw the employment offer that they made prior to finding out this discrepancy in her employment history. And after they do so, she writes them essentially a letter that says, uh, you're discriminating against me because of my transgender status, which again, if you, if you take the opinion on its face, it seems like that is the first moment that anyone had any idea of this, this person's status. Right. Right. Yeah, right. And, and so it gets thrown out in the lower court because I mean, you know, there's pretty established case law on how you make 
a Title VII claim of employment discrimination, right? You have to show that you're part of a protected class. You have to show that you are qualified. You have to show that you are rejected despite the fact that you are qualified and that others who are outside your, your protected class um, who are less qualified than you are being treated more favorably, right? This It's old, ancient case law. It's firmly established. And the lower court essentially said, you haven't brought forth anything that satisfies these factors. You, you, have, you have no factual support. It gets thrown out. The Fifth Circuit, in this opinion, written by Judge Ho, the the majority opinion here, and I don't even know if you can call it really a majority, but in any, the the opinion essentially says, yeah, that's that's all good. Um, we, we affirm it's it's only a couple of pages, and then Judge Ho writes a concurrence to his own. <laughs> majority opinion that is i think maybe four times longer and it's it's essentially an extra opinion that he you know he adds in the gist of it is it's extra it's three times as long yeah (laughs) i i need to chime in about title (laughs) seven and how it applies to sexual orientation and transgender because really i i need to talk about the bathrooms Right, folks. Right. Like we've got, we've I got think, boy bathrooms, we've got girl bathrooms, and if if all this Title Seven stuff keeps happening, I'm afraid we're going to have a boy girl bathroom, and I don't know what we're going to do as a country if we have the boy girl bathroom. That is, he's fixated on this. I think, and I think what's really funny is right. So there are three, there are three judges. It's a unanimous opinion on the majority opinion for two reasons, right? The first reason, obviously, the claim fails on the merits. Because regardless of whether a Title VII claim is or is not viable, clearly this firing wasn't based on her protected status. Mm. We'll take the facts as presented and found by the district court as true, and so we'll just assume that that part is right. Where the district court screwed up is that there are a bunch of circuits that have found that Title VII covers sexual orientation. And there are circuits that have found that Title VII covers gender rights. But the Fifth Circuit happens not to be one of them. And the Fifth Circuit in the 1970s specifically had a case that found that it did not extend to sexual orientation, though it didn't cover gender identity. At least that is the analysis is closer And so Ho, in a much more reasonable point, is like, why did the district court cite all of these other circuits without citing our case? (laughs) Just for the record, these other circuits all acknowledge that our case holds in our circuit. So why did you go rogue on circuit precedent? So you should have dismissed under Bloom. And if you weren't going to dismiss under Bloom, you should have dismissed on the facts. And he gets three judges for that. And he also writes this real, like, again, a rogue, unnecessary concurrence just to put on the record his feeling about Title VII and whether it applies. And it was so far afield, neither of the other judges signed on to it. And and one of them, (laughs) Judge Higginbotham, wrote a one paragraph thing saying please don't do this <laughs> the rhythm the rhythm of these three opinions back to back to back like the way this concurrence goes it's exactly what it's like when you get in a really heated argument and things don't get settled but they get like civil enough that you agree to drop it and you take two steps away and you turn around and you go you fucking know what and you just go off and it makes everything so much worse (laughs) right so Higginbotham is like we are supposed to exercise restraint this case is incredibly easy because we have precedent and because the facts are bad, well, he doesn't even get to the facts because he's like, we have precedent. And so we don't even have to discuss gender identity at all. The, the district court should have just followed Bloom and then we could have all left. So are we good? And then James Ho says, yeah, go the, get your fucking shine the box. The fuck did you say? <laughs> That's right. Not good at all. And, and it's just so funny because he, Ho, opens up his thing by saying, just for the record, because 
there's a circuit split. And because the EEOC has asked us to address the issue, which is true, the EEOC at the time was taking the position that Title VII does cover gender identity. And so they wrote an amicus brief supporting, supporting the plaintiff. He's like, further discussion is warranted. And that is absolutely not true. <laughs> like, all of it, had he even stuck it in the majority opinion, 13 pages that would have been pure dicta if it was in the majority opinion, and you could tell the other judges forced him to take it yeah. out of the majority opinion, but they couldn't stop him from writing a <laughs> concurrence. And, and that's it. The big one is he, he says that... If you adopt the idea that on account of sex includes transgenderism, then you couldn't possibly legally justify separate bathrooms. Even though people have them for modesty's sake in this regime of oppressive of oppressive discrimination law, there's no way that you could possibly have separate men's and women's bathrooms, which doesn't even get into the question whether whether trans people should be able to use a bathroom in concordance with their own gender identity. He's like the whole idea of separate bathrooms is now completely illegal, <laughs> and there's no compelling argument against it. There's just one big socialized bathroom now. <laughs> He just says it. And and the second there was a second circuit judge who agreed with me. And when pressed at oral argument, the attorney who was probably like, what? I don't even understand your question, <laughs> also agreed that it's absolutely true. Under the blindness theory of Title VII, who knows what other horrible things will have to be writ written out of our social environment. And I still don't get it. I don't get why separate bathrooms on consent of everyone become illegal. If if we ever actually have a Supreme Court opinion or enough circuit court opinions that say Title VII, as written, requires no separate bathrooms, Congress is going to pass a law in 30 seconds that just says <laughs> Title VII does not apply to restrooms or does not apply to does gyms. Does not require. Or, yeah, exa exactly, yeah. It does, does not require mass community, multi-gender bathrooms. Yeah. <laughs> and this is, by the way, teed up. This particular case is not before the Supreme Court because I think it was, it reached the Fifth Circuit after cert had been granted in two other cases. Two of the cases that are cited at the beginning of Ho's opinion, the uh, funeral home case and Hively versus Ivy Tech, I think both of those cases were consolidated and it were argued and it's pending. Mm -hmm. And th what was interesting about that oral argument <clears throat> is that Gorsuch was clearly straining to figure out how to rule the way that Ho did. Because at oral argument, Gorsuch was like, this is really very clearly on account of sex. <laughs> and yet we have to consider the social upheaval, which is very non-Gorsuch-like. His whole thing is that the chips fall where they may and he doesn't give a shit, right? He's the joker blowing up a hospital, right? Because he's that principle. Yeah. And right here on this one thing, he's... He is clearly looking for a way to argue around it. And I think that's kind of what Ho was doing here. This was Ho trying to provide Gorsuch with a template for all of the reasons why discriminating against transgender people under title is not covered by Title VII because it's not sex stereotyping and it's not like Loving versus Virginia where you're being held to account for who you have the relationship with. And he's got these like really thin justifications for why it's different from those things. But that's what I think this is. This was his amicus brief in those other cases to give Gorsuch a reason to be able to vote uh, not to include gender identity under uh, Title VII. That is my uh, opinion of... Judge Ho going rogue on this case.
We have time to talk about his other case, recent uh, Fifth Circuit. Yeah, yeah. Gibson v. Collier. Hey, everybody. Sorry to interrupt uh, the flow of the conversation I was having with Patrick and Eric there, but I decided that the three of us are three people with very little factual knowledge about the issues underlying a lot of what we're talking about here. Specifically, uh, in the upcoming case, one issue that comes up a lot is WPATH, a guide for trans health and treatment of people who are transitioning. It is nothing that I have any expertise in. Uh, I cannot get myself to remember what it is an acronym for. So to help me and our audience work through this, I had to bring on someone who knows something. And so I have brought a friend. A lot of people who know me will also know her from Twitter. Everyone, please say hello to Lauren Walker. Hi, Charles. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Great to be here. I appreciate it. I am so glad you could come. Uh, we, I am finally doing a podcast with a guest. I have never, I have never done that really before, and I think it uh, is, it's a good time to start. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm, I'm excited to maybe be the first non-lawyer on the podcast. Absolutely. Excellent. Absolutely. Excellent. The first lawyer. I love that I um, got here with, with none of the accolades or accomplishments of the rest of you. At the end of the day, <laughs> at all. Let me be clear. We have no accolades or accomplishments. <laughs> we, we have a credential. It's true. <laughs> and my credential is that I am transgender. I, I'm a trans woman. <laughs> uh, just going to segue with, with that. Um, yes. And that's, that's you know, I'm, I I wanted to come on and talk about uh, WPATH and their standards of care. Should we just go right into it? Um, yes, please. First, let's, let's start by getting the real basics of my ignorance. Sure. It stands for? Uh, WPATH stands for the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. Thank and you. it's it's a bit of a, um, a Frankenstein Frankenstein's monster situation when we say the WPATH. It's it's used as shorthand colloquially for the standards of care, which are on their seventh version. Uh, the organization puts these out. It's they really produce like a like an 80, 120 page document that's intended for doctors, therapists, and, and researchers more than it is policymakers or lawmakers. And it's. But- Okay, but, it is, it, but it is used um, by a number of organizations trying to set policy simply because there really is no better institutional organization producing this kind of information for the that, that can be used by the public. Um, so a lot of uh, health insurers now go off WPAS standards of care. That's not to say it's it's not flawed. You know, this is an evolving subject. A lot of right. trans I would people think will seven say, versions tells you. Absolutely. That, but, I mean, but like that it's evolving is good, right? The people who do it learn as they go. Absolutely. And, the, and they're bringing a more community. And they're bringing right? more trans people into setting those standards of care because it's mostly doctors. It's mostly cis people who aren't themselves transgender. There are a right. lot of trans people who criticize the standards of care um, put out because it still requires a lot of like medical intervention you're still kind of doing it through the gatekeeping of a doctor. All of these things that the trans community have expressed some criticism for with these standards, but there still is not really, and it, you know, trans people don't have the resources that um, their their doctors do to organize bodies that can legislate on their or, or advocate on their behalf the same way. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of what we've got for now, and it's certainly right. better than what came before, which was atrocious. So <laughs> I, for one, am grateful, having benefited from it recently, living in or, or working in D.C., where insurers are required to follow WPS standards of care. So I'm, right. I'm there's criticisms to be had of it from trans people. People would uh, note if, if I didn't mention that. But on the whole, it's it's a fairly progressive standard for how transgender people should be um, treated throughout the course of their life from a medical perspective. Okay, and so let's let's talk a little about, and I will say the reason this comes up in the cases, it is not just insurers, but this has come up a lot lately in uh, prisoner litigation, where transgender prisoners are seeking health care for various stages of transitioning, and different every state 
gets to set their own internal policy. And in a case that we uh, are going to talk about a little in Florida, in a case that I talk about with Patrick and Eric uh, in Texas, um, there are just very different policies. But I will say it appears that in general, at least some trans care ha- transitioning has been cons- like accepted within the prisons as something that they do do as a part of healthcare as it's deemed medically necessary how prisons deem things medically necessary becomes a separate issue yes um, it's something a lot of activists have been working for for a long time i can remember kind of before a lot of this wave of activism came about i you know when i first started transitioning 10 some years ago these standards of care are so far beyond where they were um and not every the, whether or not Prisons are adopting past these, we'll see, but it is a significant step forward from even uh, less than a generation ago. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about how, uh, and you mentioned how medicalized this is. So my understanding from reading these cases is that at each stage, whether it is uh, personal appearance or hormone therapy or gender-conforming surgery, at each stage, there is what it amounts to, as far as I could tell, is a psychological evaluation. You spend time with medical professionals who work with you and deem, like, various stages of this appropriate or not, right? That's correct. I, I, you need th- a- it seems pretty, like, a crude the way I'm explaining it, but if you could articulate that a little better. Absolutely. It's, it's, um, there's several different stages in the process to really get your foot in the door to start hormone replacement therapy. You, you need to pass a mental health screening according to WPATH guidelines. And you, the, the criteria, there's a four um, criteria that they assess. First and foremost is persistent, well-documented gender dysphoria. Um, that's another thing the trans community kind of disputes whether or not that should be necessary, but it is part of the requirements. Two is capacity to make fully informed decision. Three is age of majority. There's a separate standards of care for under 18s that requires parental consent. And fourth, there's um, when pre-existing or, or significant medical or mental health conditions are present, they have to be well controlled. What mm-hmm. that means for different people depends, but those are the four basic criteria that they're checking for just getting your starting the whole process, seeing a therapist, starting HRT um, before anything else happens. Further surgical intervention requires um, a similar screening for top surgery, air quotes around top. It means uh, breast augmentation or mammal removal. Mm. Yeah, recon- removal and mastectomy and reconstruction was the phrase I was mm-hmm. looking for. Then finally, for bottom quote, sur- quote around at surgery. Uh, you need two letters of removal from two therapists uh, or doctors uh, confirming that you've been through this process. And additionally, it requires you um, a year of uh, no longer using the dated phrase real life experience, but one year as your chosen slash preferred slash whatever preferred tech terminology, 12 months as your preferred gender. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like I said, because this, because WPATH has become the benchmark in all of the litigation that I've seen, the prisons in general, though there are definitely exceptions in both of these cases, in general accept WPATH as the standard of care, sort of up to a point. You know, in the in the Texas case, which you didn't read, they completely reject gender conforming surgery, mm-hmm. and that is as a matter of state policy. Because there is some dispute in the field, and the judge who dissented in that case basically was like, there's a dispute in people who are sort of more crackpotty, who say that it's never appropriate. Right. The case that we're looking at in Florida is at its baseline, and certainly by the time it gets to the 11th Circuit, Uh, more generous than that, in that there are bad policies that we'll talk about. But by the time it gets to the 11th Circuit, Florida accepts that they have to reevaluate prisoners as they are incarcerated for where they should be along the scale. And the plaintiff, Rain or Rainey Keohane, is a trans woman serving time in a men's prison who, at the time of the the appellate litigation, is receiving HRT, but was not 
for the first two years of her incarceration because Florida refused to do it. The case ends up pivoting around the fact that they maintain grooming standards for a male prison and they refuse to let her socially transition with respect to undergarments, with respect to hairstyle. They won't allow that. I'd like to hear your take. Uh, Well, let me give the result first. First, the result is the... 11th Circuit reversed and said that they did not need to allow her to socially transition. But given that sort of long background that I will probably edit down, what thoughts do you have about uh, the litigation as a non-lawyer who is trans? There's a couple things about it I think is really interesting. First, I should say that I think something that's interesting. First, I'd say that it's worth noting that WPATH standards of care do have a section discussing how institutionalized transgender people should be treated. It's a short section. It's, once again, WPATH standards of care being less than perfect doesn't really get into the, all these super detailed breakdowns of like where uh, or, or how important social transitioning can be mm-hmm. for, to transgender people. Um, and this is something anybody can immediately understand just looking at their own life. If everybody around you was calling you by the wrong pronouns, if they were referring to you, you know, if people just one day started calling you, um, Char- Char- Charles is very hard to feminize <laughs> uh, as far as name goes. But it transitioning physically is as much to reflect how we interact with people in the real world as it is for our own personal treatment of dysphoria mm-hmm. or any of these other reasons why someone might transition. Uh, It is a super critical thing for us. Yes, I I definitely think that's true. For many of us. One of the things that struck me about the opinion is if this were a unanimous opinion, I think it would have sounded, despite what I think is a very not great result, ultimately, I think it would have sounded very empathetic, right? One of the other cases that we talk about is literally about a a judicial panel that is snarky and cruel. And in this one, it isn't even commented on. And she is referred to with feminine pronouns throughout. Yes. And the way they discuss trans health and the need for appropriate care as a medical issue, as opposed to even treating it as controversial, I think, was surprising, especially given how the result was entirely on the prison side. Absolutely. And and I think uh, I think you're right. I think you're leading toward this, that if you just look at the overall piece, if there wasn't this dissent in it, uh, it would be very easy to get that impression that this is this, this entirely progressive document and they just their hands are kind of tied. Right. You know, there's things they just can't do. Yeah. Uh, it's moot now. What do you, you know? What, shrug your shoulders. What are you going to do? Yep. And um, but- and that's I mean, the mootness issue is, I think, an interesting one legally, which is this. The Florida had what they called a freeze frame rule. Whatever stage of treatment you are when you begin incarceration, that's your treatment for the term of your incarceration, and we won't reevaluate or change it. And so for years, Keohane fought against that and repeatedly filed grievances and complaints and tried to get the prison to change. And it has to be said, tried to kill herself several yes. times. There were both formal and informal signals uh, that her current level of care was inappropriate. It is ambiguous to me whether she was receiving HRT before incarceration and then they stopped. But in any event, for a very extended period of her incarceration, she wasn't receiving it until she finally sued. And when she sued, Florida, one, began starting her on a, they evaluated and approved and began her HRT treatment, and then also reversed the freeze frame policy in general. Right. I think the dissent actually also mentions that uh, while this was going on, they were actively denying another transgender prisoner uh, hormone therapy unrelated to this in the prison system after, prior to the, uh, sorry, after she had filed the suit, but before... Yes. Yeah, no, no. no During the period while her suit was pending. Yes. And yes. the majority hand waves that away by saying it's just one rogue doctor who was corrected, though not without delay and not without serious distress to the 
the sep the second uh, inmate who was denied the treatment. What else in the opinion struck you as good or bad? I, there were a couple things I thought were interesting. The first thing that really jumped out to me was uh, their discussion of how uh, medical treatment, uh, what, what's required for medical treatment to violate the Eighth <laughs> Amendment. Specifically, no, well, no, I, I wrote the this. same thing down because I was sure it would catch yes. you. Go. The medical care provided to prisoners um, doesn't have to be perfect, the best obtainable, or even very good. Uh, so I will say that's every doctor I've ever experienced with anything regarding transgender healthcare who is not a specialist. <laughs> and that comes up again because they, they actively say, no, you, it would be absurd if every prisoner with any convicted inmate at taxpayer expense, they mm -hmm. mentioned that, of course, with doctors had to have particularized experience, perhaps even a specialty in dealing with his or her precise condition, no matter yeah, how rare. Exactly. The idea that it is so far above and beyond. Yeah, I mean, I thought you might catch the actual formulation, which is that it isn't so grossly incompetent as to shock the conscience, which is like, it really is pretty crazy how much leeway they give prison officials to be terrible yes. at care. And and fuck transgender people. What about the, the people yes. with diabetes? Well, right, but that's right. I mean, you will not be surprised to find that these standards were not set in transgender health cases. They were set in cases where the prison doctors were denying treatment for for a variety of things and doing a really horrible job and misdiagnosing and people losing limbs and dying. But those were like not Eighth Amendment violations because they tried. Right. They're just they're just yeah. cruel ish. Yes. They're not cruel. <laughs> and if you do it enough, I suppose it's not unusual. Uh, that jumped out at me. The other thing that really jumped out at me was the fact that she was like a preteen when she came into this. Sorry, she was a um, she had expressed dysphoria as mm -hmm. a preteen. She came into the system, I think, as a late teenager, early twenties, yeah. not yeah. even twenty. Um, the the you know I, I don't think there's a, a a legal basis for for what I'm saying here, but that two years of like uh, uh in in your late twenties, you know, puberty does not stop mm -hmm. at eighteen. Uh, as convenient as that would be for everyone, it really stops in yeah. like your mid twenties. Those couple years as a teenager, um, especially for trans people who are going through the the wrong puberty, uh, every uh, every minute, not every minute. I don't want to sound too alarmist, but two years of additional um, masculinizing hormones can be pretty traumatic and have a pretty tangible effect on things that the transgender person is then going to want to spend money, a lot of money, therapy, years of, of therapy and, yeah. and hormones to yeah. try to correct. I mean, right. Prison is, is terrifying enough when you have the right, correct hormones yeah. in your body. Uh, exceptional and, and kind of above and beyond even what regular mm -hmm. prison is like. Uh, there were a couple of things that I went through that I that I sort of mm -hmm. noticed. I think one, I guess the main issue here uh, was social transitioning, which the prison rejects entirely and which the majority agrees that they have a right to reject on what it says is the grounds that one expert said that it was psychologically pleasing. And that was like an insufficient standard. And I thought it was interesting that the uh, that the dissent, the dissent responded to that by saying that expert said that it was psychologically pleasing kind of as an aside. But even that expert seemed to agree that social transitioning right. is very important as part of transgender health. And we should probably we should probably clarify when we say social transitioning, we are not talking about that, like that turfism idea of putting someone with the external genitalia of a male male puberty in a female prison. That is not what we are talking about. We're talking about literally just growing hair longer below, I think, the collar uh, and wearing the same clothing that women yes. and female prisoners. And, and I should point out that it never comes up whether it is uh, appropriate or inappropriate. I think different states do it differently, right? Like Orange is the New Black takes place in Pennsylvania. So I assume that there is something where uh, trans women are housed in women's prisons, at least at some level. 
but he- yes, depending on like pre or post op status, some prison, a lot of prisons also now just have uh-huh. transgender wards specifically for like one statewide or one citywide, depending right. on the size, just for transgender. Right. And prisoners. In here, in this case, I mean, she's obviously she's obviously before gender conforming surgery. I don't even know if that's something in her future, but she is currently, like I said, incarcerated in men's prison, yes. and that never comes up about whether that. Uh, is or is not appropriate when they're discussing the fact that the fact that she can't socially transition by growing out her hair and wearing female undergarments. And they see it. There's like a, there's like a contraband risk, which is kind of like yeah. a baffling. I mean, that's like there. I It's like something out of Tarantino. She's going to pull a hairpin out of her of her long tresses should she grow them out? But but I mean, those sorts of things, when you read about prison litigation and what they consider security risks, literally everything is a security risk. And so in this case, what they consider a security risk is literally having long hair that you can hide stuff in. And so they require all men to keep their hair groomed short. I don't remember their exact standard, but certainly nothing below the shoulder. I think it's interesting how much, when you consider litigation a success or a failure, how much she got just by suing, even though she didn't win? Oh, it was immediate. Yeah, I'm trying to think if there was anything that's, you know, the dissent is really worth reading in, in yeah. entirety. Yeah, both because it's because it's more empathetic and really angry, I think, at what it sees as the faux empathy of the majority. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Where they're like, every time you phrase this with a nice word, you also distort the record just enough to be able to let the prison off the hook. And and the majority kind of sees that coming. They are super, in, in the end, there's like super, conde- not, not condescending, what's the word I'm looking for? They are super touchy about like, yeah, you know, the dissent is going to say this, this, and yeah. this. They know it's coming and, and they're just very up, up front like, yeah, he's going to kind of rip yeah. us apart for this. If you do not have any other comments on the case or uh, anything dumb I may have said. Now, nothing really jumps out. I want to stress that WPAS standards of care are a work in progress and they're not the end all be all from the perspective of trans people and trans activists who are still working for better guidelines for non-binary people and people who don't chemically transition and people who are still being gatekept by doctors from whatever kinds of transition they want to get. But as far from a perspective of policymaking, uh, it's where we are right now and there's room for improvement and we'll get there. Lauren, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to do this with me. Uh, Anything that gets us through this uh, uh, non-existent baseball season (laughs) is great. Thank Uh, you for having me on. All right. See you online. Sounds good. We have time to talk about his other case, recent uh, Fifth Circuit, yeah, yeah. Gibson v. Collier. This one is probably, of all the three, I think it's it, it might be the saddest yes. uh, of these three fifths, these notorious Fifth Circuit opinions. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll just jump into it. This is someone who is incarcerated in the state of Texas, um, someone who is currently plaintiffs currently undergoing counseling and, and hormone therapy. It's, this is a transgender individual, but this is a transgender individual who is essentially pleading for sex reassignment surgery while incarcerated. And the Texas Department of Corrections procedures that are applicable to you know this individual's treatment, they essentially say that sex reassignment surgery is not an option. They're not going to provide it. And so this person. And not only are they not going to provide it, as a matter of policy, they will not even. Like, they already concede, right, that she is gender dysphoric and is receiving treatment in the prison for gender dysphoria. But they're like, we will not even evaluate you for whether right. sex reassignment surgery is appropriate because, as a matter of policy, we find it is not appropriate. There's some number of experts out there who don't believe in the efficacy of sex reassignment surgery, and we are on their side. 
And so we, since we believe that in general it is ineffective, we have a policy against even evaluating people for whether it is appropriate. Right, right. And so this is a case where the plaintiff is bringing an Eighth Amendment claim saying that essentially being subjected to cruel and unusual punishment. The standard here is whether the state is being deliberately indifferent uh, to the plaintiff's medical needs. And the opinion we get from Judge Ho essentially boils down to, um, you know, in, in the medical community, there is a lot of discourse and difference of opinion on whether or not sex reassignment surgery is the way to go for all transgender uh, individuals. And so since there's just a lot of general disagreement in the community, we don't think Texas is being deliberately indifferent by not even examining whether it's appropriate for this person. Because there's just so much, the the lack of consensus is so great that they can't possibly be deliberately indifferent uh, to this person's needs by, by refusing to even ask the question. Yeah. There's this parsing around the notion of a genuine debate existing, which is really similar to like how climate denialists discuss things or even when you used to have like an argument about like um, like evolution where it's like, oh, th- there's a controversy here that we need to discuss. And then it when they start listing stuff, it becomes pretty clear that most of the evidence is on one side, not the other one. And then starts kind of hemming and hawing. This is not to say, of course, that a single dissenting expert automatically defeats medical consensus. And then it's kind of kind of this back and forth about how much actual um, dispute there really is versus how much dispute they want to meet the threshold of what's enough for them to be barbaric in this case. Right. Right. I mean, he uses the standard. He calls the standard universal acceptance. And he concedes that, right, like, oh, one lone crank doesn't make it not universally accepted, you know, so I don't want you to think that I'm completely crazy, but there is uh, some debate. And then they cite to a First Circuit case, which came out the same way, kind of. And so they make a big deal about the First Circuit case, which also denied a prisoner sex reassignment surgery. But when you look at the procedural posture here, it ends up being completely crazy because the the prison didn't even move to dismiss on Eighth Amendment grounds in the district. They moved on other procedural grounds that the court didn't agree with. They're like, no, 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 uh, Gibson stated a claim and you can, they can proceed. But the district court is like, I think you've got an Eighth Amendment problem. You know, you're bringing this claim under the Eighth Amendment and claiming deliberate indifference. But I don't see it. (laughs) It can't be deliberately indifferent because there's this dispute in the community and therefore they don't have to examine you and your case is dismissed. And at this point, Gibson is pro se. And so Gibson appeals and gets counsel assigned and counsel kind of, I think, fucks it up because the counsel allows the Eighth Amendment analysis to proceed without any factual record. Because the Texas response when they're briefing the Eighth Amendment is literally to just like they just submitted the record from Kozilek in the First Circuit. And there are experts on one side and there are experts on the other side. And the fact that there are two sets of experts proves that there's enough of a controversy so that it can't possibly be the case that it is cruel and unusual for us to, you know, not be ahead of the curve. Judge Ho kind of brushes over these procedural irregularities. I, I really enjoyed this passage where, yeah, you're essentially explaining that, you know, if, if only counsel had pressed these procedural irregularities, we might actually be remanding this for further proceedings. Now, did they screw up? Maybe not, because maybe counsel was savvy enough to know that even if we remanded it, there's no chance in hell <laughs> he would win on the merits anyways, because uh, we're just going to go ahead and decide the merits of the claim anyways, and, and it's a loser. So basically saying maybe counsel was wise to not actually litigate this effectively to spare his client the, embarrassing, uh, the embarrassment of losing 
uh, right, <laughs> on remand right. a, instead of just losing. Look, in, in, look, he should have known that I would have made sure I got this case <laughs> right, again. Right. Part of what the dissent says is Kozilek was decided four years ago. The factual record in Kozilek was complete years before that. And the district court in this case probably could have used the benefit of seven more years of scientific inquiry on these issues. Like, why is this case, why why are we accepting the lay of the land, you know, four, five, eight years ago as the state of the current scientific consensus? And the only reason we're doing that is because you want to short circuit the claim. It's the one female judge on the panel who who actually was a Poppy Bush appointee, so not even, you know, a hated Democrat judge. <laughs> in the course of it, they used male pronouns for, I know now in this case, they did use male pronouns. They footnoted why, and they cite a 1973 case <laughs> that sex is an immutable characteristic determined solely by birth. Uh, Bar- Judge Barksdale is like, I'm not even sure why you are citing a disparate treatment sex discrimination case from 46 years ago to justify your <laughs> refusal to uh, use feminine pronouns for the litigant here. Yeah, that's how. That's how they did it back in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Right. It's probably fine. Yeah, so just total, total, <laughs> again, just throwaway cruelty nonsense. Barksdale is like, stop using a really old record for presenting more contemporary claims. You know, and so then that, so that's it. That's the whole, the whole whole opinion is, you know, because there's, and it, I mean, he goes on for a long time, but none of it really matters because it all circles back over and over and over again to the same point, which is in the Kozilek record from five years ago, there is a dispute among experts as to whether sex reassignment surgery is an effective method of treatment for uh, gender dysphoria. And because there is a dispute in the field, it is good enough for the Texas Department of Corrections to pick a side in the dispute and make policy based on it. And therefore, it can't possibly be cruel and unusual. And the dissent's response to it is it's deliberate indifference to not treat individuals as individuals. Mm -hmm. Even in Kozilek, they didn't decide it based on the experts. They decided it based on an entire trial record where the experts disagreed at some level on the principal, but on a more specific level on the plaintiff, on whether Kozilek's treatment required sex reassignment surgery. And they decided that she was not a candidate. And like she lists all of these other cases that the majority cites and she's like all of these cases turned on individual evaluations that's gonna lead to the whole bathroom thing again though (laughs) right so barksdale really i think rips him apart as being like phony and cruel there is out there a medical standard for how you treat dysphoric patients the w path the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, the WPATH standards. And the standards are treat individuals as individuals. And here are the ways that you evaluate someone for dysphoria. And here are the ways you evaluate them for the different levels of treatment protocols. And everyone basically agrees that this is like the gold standard for how people are treated, except a few people are like, Uh, sex reassignment surgery is never appropriate in any circumstance. It is not effective. And that's the controversy in the field that Judge Ho hangs everything on as a way of just cutting the litigation short and giving, uh, giving Gibson no relief.
just heartless shit. Well, before we move on, I would like to leave us with some words from um, Judge James Ho, uh, who says, who says in, uh, in the concluding sentence to uh, his prior concurrence, I join in the decision to affirm the district court, but I do so with concern that the people are losing faith in their institutions and that our courts are giving the people reason to oh, do oh, so. Is he, is he concerned about that? <laughs> yeah, be the change <laughs> you want to see in the world. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you to Eric Michael, Patrick Cosmos, and Lauren Walker for joining me, and to Daniel Parshall for sound engineering and production. The Hostile Witness theme is Blue Ghosts by Riverboat Gamblers, and our bumpers are Patrick Cosmos' Fear of Heights. I'm Charles Starr. Thanks for listening.